John chapter 17, you have a little sermon note outline there in your bulletin, a place to make notes and observations as you study the word with us today and hopefully throughout the week. In John 17 verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, the 17th chapter of John's gospel contains one of the most precious insights into our God that we have in all of the Holy Scriptures. We are told that Jesus finishes the farewell discourse, which is his words for the disciples in chapter 13 through 16, chapters that testify the words of Jesus to the disciples the night of the Last Supper, the night before his crucifixion. They are words of encouragement and instruction for the time that is coming. As Jesus concludes these words, Chapter 17, verse 1 testifies that Jesus lifted his eyes to the heavens and prayed. This is the longest recorded prayer of our Lord during his public ministry on earth. It has been known, it has become known as the high priestly prayer. We believe it was offered in the presence of the disciples, and starting today, we too will get to draw near and be blessed by the words of God the Son as he speaks to God the Father and prepares to finish his redemptive work by going to the cross in the place of undeserving sinners. Another famous prayer of Jesus that we know well, we find in Matthew 6, often called the Lord's Prayer. I would argue it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. Why? It's because Jesus was in teaching the disciples how to pray. It's not the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Lord could not and would not have prayed, forgive us of our transgressions. That would not be his prayer. He was teaching sinners who needed the gospel, who needed salvation, how to talk to God. John 17 might be better argued to be the Lord's prayer because it's a prayer that he gives as only he can give it. To remind you of a few other examples in the gospels of Jesus praying, while being baptized, Jesus engaged in prayer. We see in Luke 3.21, immediately on the commencement of his public ministry, you find after a short moment following the day of, of long labor, he, he rose early, it says in Mark 1.35, a great while before the day, went out and departed into a solitary place there and prayed. In Luke 6.12, on the eve of selecting the 12 apostles, disciples, he went out to a mountain to pray, and continued all through the night in prayer to God. In Luke 9, 29, uh, while engaged in the act of prayer, he was transfigured. But what's unique about all these prayers, and it's often in, in the gospel testimonies that we see Jesus praying, making time to pray, and spend that communion with the Lord, with God the Father. But what is special about John 17, in comparison to all the rest, is we don't have deep insight into the words that were said. But here we do. How thankful we should be for this. Within it, we learn so much about who God is, the triune God. We learn uh, that doctrine is important in prayer. John MacArthur famously said, this is, entire prayer is doctrine. What we believe and understand about God, not only should we preach with sound doctrine, we should pray with sound doctrine. Church, may we lean in today and in the weeks to come 
and learn from this prayer. Be overwhelmed by the words of our Lord Jesus as he draws near God the Father in prayer. May we too be reminded of the power of prayer and the need for consistent prayer in our lives. That we not be foolish to neglect the rich and powerful opportunity to fellowship with God Almighty in prayer. That we would see the need to often remind our souls that He is worthy that whatever the situation we're in is best in his hands, that he is worthy to be trusted with it, with life's hardest situations, with with our deepest thoughts and desires. May we not just pray when we're in a bind, but all the time. For our God is with us. The Son has made a way for us to walk and talk with him all the time. Do we cherish it? And practice it like we should. I pray as a result of our time, we'd be inspired to do so. It says, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Just slow down with me for a moment and take that in. God ordained that we would be told the posture of Jesus as he went to prayer. As we witness this in John 17, the veil is kind of drawn aside and we are admitted into this moment by which God the Son is going to be talking with God the Father in prayer. What a holy place this is. An intimate prayer between Son and Father. I mean, consider Jesus came, he took on flesh. God the Son, who is eternal, we'll see that today, came, took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled, as we studied in chapter 1. Pitched his tent among us in flesh here on earth. And now he's about to complete his mission, what he's called to do, what he came to do. And in this moment, he pauses. He's talking to God the Father in this holy and reverent moment that we get to witness, we get to hear what's said. I don't know about you, have you ever been in the room when a husband said goodbye to his wife as she passed away? Or a mother to her son? I have more than once in some ways pinching myself, going, what am I doing? You have a husband and a son saying goodbye to their mother. I'm the only one other person in the room. This most intimate place. And the words that are said in that moment are so precious. The final words that we'd share with each other. Church, this is that moment in, in Jesus' incarnation, in his mission, he's spending that time with God the Father in prayer. So, so let us, as we would that hospital room, let us, let us enter in with a posture of awe and, and humility. Let, let us metaphorically put our shoes off from our feet and listen humbly reverently with our hearts prepared for this place that we're in this conversation we're about 
is holy ground. And with that, I just ask you, brothers and sisters, what is your posture before the Lord? Jesus' posture here is he lifted his eyes to heaven. This is a prayer that's remarkable because it demonstrates the humiliation of Christ in a unique way. I mean, considering that he is God the Son, he is eternal, worthy of everything. He, he, everything that is made was made by his word. He is God who upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. He is God who will come and reign and establish his rule on earth in the new heavens and the new earth. He is God. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is consummator of the universe. And yet in his incarnation, that in his taking on flesh, God the Son sets aside those, those privileges and submits himself to the will of the Father, to the will of the covenant of redemption, the plan set forth before creation to redeem an undeserving people for his glory. And so he prays, he begins with prayer to the Father to say, fulfill everything that you've promised. And in this, he gives us the most awesome example of our need for prayer, that even God the Son, who controls all things, goes in this most amazing posture to prayer, to interact with God the Father. Bishop Ryle, theologian of old, said, this shows that bodily gestures in prayer and worship of God are not altogether to be overlooked as unmeaning. The gesture naturally rep represents or expresses his looking heavenward, that with it is an expression of withdrawal from the thoughts and for us the affections of earthly things to esteem the Father. It's an elevation of the heart to God. David once said, To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Psalm 25, 1. Psalm 123, 1. He says, To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Such a posture signifies a confidence in God. And, and, and with that, maybe is something to consider. Can there be a, a real and authentic prayer if not a turning away from fleshly dependencies and a true and authentic and wholehearted turning to God? How guilty are we of flopping out incantation, words, not considering who they're going to, not really considering a true yielding of oneself unto God, but more of just an adding of a religious routine, like you would check a box or close a door, that maybe we'd slow down and really consider our posture before the Lord in prayer. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's Psalm 121, 1 and 2.
Jesus instructed us to do this in what I named a moment ago the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, 29, in 6, 9, Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this, he says. Our Father in heaven, acknowledging, he goes further, say, hallowed be your name. That, that Those words in heaven, hallowed, that, that's a, a posture of the heart in the opening words of prayer. To be hallowed means holy, that God is holy. He's set apart, not common. Lifted high be your name. The first thing Jesus teaches us to do as we pray, the first priority of the heart is to embrace the height and the set-apartness and the holiness and the worthiness of God. I ask you, is God set apart from, is he higher than everything else in your heart, in your life? What are you doing to practice that, to constantly be sure that his name is hallowed in your life? First Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, is the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. That we would have a reverent awe of who God is. I can think of no better way than to begin our prayers humbly approaching the throne, almost lost for words in the majesty of his presence, in the shadow of his holiness, lost for words that he would save or know or draw near to a sinner like me. Jesus looking to the heavens is a beautiful sight of his focus on God, his honor for God the Father. But we have examples of other postures in Scripture, do we not? We have examples of people falling on their faces before the holiness of God. Of, of bowing heads. Jesus' own parable and teaching of the, the tax collector who would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner as the example of the one who truly knew the Lord and humbled himself before him. Church, let us consider our posture, not, and don't hear me wrong, not with any prescribed extra-biblical man-made policy or practice, but really as a reflection of our heart for God, our respect, our reverence for him. And we see it continue. Jesus calls God intimately by addressing him as Father. He lifted his eyes to the heaven and said, Father. Church, all prayer is to the Father. It's true for us as well. Prayer is to the Father. It's through the Son by the power of 
of the Holy Spirit. We don't pray to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. While we can acknowledge their presence and their work, prayer is modeled for us and given to us that it's to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason why we don't pray like other religions or with other religions, because there is only one true God, according to Scripture. We do not pray to other gods. We do not pray to Mary. We do not pray to angels or family members who have passed away. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, God is a good, good Father. Amen? You have access to Him through Jesus. First Timothy 2.5, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, our prayers are going to go farther than the ceiling. We need a mediator. And as we witness Jesus talking with the Father, I want to I want us to revel. I want us to get excited about that. We can do that too because of what Jesus did for us. Because he continues to do it for us as mediator. Romans 8, 15 and 16. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That we too can call God Father. We cannot overlook the significance of the Holy Spirit's work in our prayer life. The work of the Holy Spirit in our prayer life is the difference between knowing a man is your father and being held in his arms. We're going to get back to that later as the text will unfold it more. An attempt at prayer without the Holy Spirit at the helm of our heart is, is an attempt to communicate with something that feels foreign and distant. You must be reborn. You must, Christ must do that work in your place. You must ha- be indwelt with the Holy Spirit in salvation. Jonathan Edwards, English theologian of old, said, Word of the Holy Spirit is the difference between having an opinion or a mind that God is holy, gracious, life, and having a heart, a sense of the loveliness and beauty and holiness and grace of God. You can have an opinion that honey is sweet because someone has told you or because of what you read about it. But not until you have truly sensed and tasted the sweetness of honey do you really know. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so in this church, our prayer life needs to be respectful like it would be to our Father. But not cold or wooden or formal like it would be to an unknown authority. Many of you maybe struggle in your prayer life because it is really to you just a religious tradition. It's it's lacking relationship with God. 
your thoughts of prayer go back to maybe religious upbringings or examples that you've seen of hold this, say this, face this direction, pray at this time of day. But that's a different team. According to the scriptures, we have a loving father who is our Abba Father. So we come to him respectfully, but we can have a more personal interaction with him that's less formal. You're not depending then on your delivery, on your style, on your perfect monologue. You're dependent on the mercy and grace and love of your Father and the work of Jesus and the ongoing interaction and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So can I encourage you, if you kind of are hung up about prayer and how often and how it works, that maybe you're just really making it all too much about you. And you just got to let that go. And just enjoy God. And want to talk with Him and walk with Him. And honor Him and know Him. Submit to Him. After He says, Father, He says, The hour has come. This is the seventh and last time that the Lord refers to this most momentous hour for early stages of his ministry, beginning with the miracle at the wedding of Cana. So my time has not yet come. He has these early references to the hour has not yet come. And then now as, as the hour has drawn near in these last chapters and interactions, we have heard him now say the hour has come. A.W. Pink's a theologian of all that we, we like, and, and he said this, man, it's so good. It's referring to the hour. It was the hour when events took place which the history of the entire universe can supply no parallel. The hour when the serpent was permitted to bruise the heel of the woman's seed when the sword of divine justice smote Jehovah's fellow, when the sun refused to shine, when the earth shook on its axis, but when the elect company were redeemed, when heaven was gladdened and which brought and shall bring to all eternity glory to God in the highest. Amen. Back in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation to glory at the right hand of the Father. What an hour. What, what, what a happening. What a series of events that God, that humankind have looked to for all time. The Redeemer has come. He's here. He's doing His work and He's about to finish it. Do you remember later in chapter 12, these words, Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. We are so guilty uh, and quick to make the crucifixion of Jesus, the work of Jesus, about us. 
We must see that it's ultimately about God and His glory. That in eternity past, God ordained that He would be glorified by the redemption of undeserving people and that that would be accomplished by the sacrifice of His only begotten, perfect, holy Son. It's It's not for us ultimately, it's ultimately for God. For His glory, that we would praise His glorious grace that He's put upon us. And so Jesus continues, the hour has come, He says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So when Jesus says, glorify your son, he's not being selfish. He's being reverent to the plan of the triune Godhead from eternity past. He's focused on what must be done ultimately for the glory of God. Church, we need to have a huge dose of wake up to the ultimate goal of our lives too, that your lives exist ultimately for his glory. That, that we push back making it about us. Pray for the Christians in Florida today, throughout the day. Don't stop praying for them. But, but don't, don't just have a, a modern Christian prosperity prayer of keep them safe only. No. Picture brothers and sisters facing great turmoil and pray, Lord, maybe for this hour, brothers and sisters, for this hour, they have come. Why? To bring glory to your name. That you would do your work in them. That they would not take the easy way, take the selfish way. They would lean in. They would love others. They would, they would share the gospel. And bring glory to your name. How quickly, though, we make our lives about us, about our stuff, my life, my time, my money, my things, my thoughts. It's all about me. The king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, defined this secular worldview really well. One day he looked out over his kingdom. In Daniel 4.30 he said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. What a godless statement of idolatry and maybe that's far-fetched because because i i highly doubt you are guilty of standing in your living room saying this residence that i have built with my hard labors is for my glory <laughs> right but maybe much more subtly we struggle and make it about us and make it about the temporary things instead of God's eternal glory. Solo Deo Gloria is our Christian worldview. Solo Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory, emphasizes that all the things that are created live, move, and have their being glory to God. It will be glorified in all creation. God will be glorified in all creation. God is glorified in His righteous judgment on man. 
all that is done will ultimately be for God's glory to the exclusion of man's self-glorification and pride. God's glory is the central motivation of him saving those he chooses. God is not the means to an end. He is the means and the end. To God be the glory. The the standard by which all things are measured is the glory of God. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory is the reason why he saves by grace through faith in Christ. Psalm 106, 6 and 8, both we and our fathers have sinned, yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. The fullness of who God is is the very reason for what he is eternally due. Popular verse we share often, Romans 11, 33-36, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is the glory of God? It is the the holiness of God, the set-apartness, the perfection of God alone that is put on display. It's the infinite worth of God made manifest. It's, It's the showing of the importance of God above all other things. Isaiah 6, 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When the holiness of God fills the earth for people to see, it's called glory. Holy means set apart from what is common. When we're speaking of God's glory, we're speaking of how His infinite value shines. God's glory is the radiance of His holiness, the outstreaming of His infinite value. The glory of God is a way to to say that there is an objective, an absolute reality to which all human wonder, awe, veneration, praise, honor, acclaim, worship, it's all pointing. God alone is truly worthy of our worship and our wonder forever. Amen? The highest aim of life and creation in all things, the driving motivation of God and all that He does is His eternal glory. And yes, he would die to save an undeserving people. And yes, that good news would change everything about our lives. But there's a higher aim, a higher prize, and it's the glory of God. And it is to know him and revel in that glory. So Jesus says, glorify your son. Why? So that the son may glorify you. Look at verse 2. Since you have given him, speaking of the Son, speaking of himself, authority over all flesh. There is one person who's been given authority over all flesh, over everyone. His name is Jesus. Jesus will later say in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth 
Think about that real quick. Just put that in your mind. In heaven and earth, all authority has been given to me, he says. Yeah, that's boss like there is no other. Right? There's no one. There's no authority who outranks him. There's no enemy, visible or invisible, who contends with him. In Colossians chapter 1, Apostle Paul will speak of the authority of Jesus this way. It's one of the great synopsis of who he is. It says in verse 16 through 18 of Colossians 1, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Not only does Jesus have more authority and power than any king or sovereign ruler in the land, in creation, he only has more authority than he made them. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the end, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He has the authority. Over all flesh. What does that mean? That means he will have whom he wants to have. Nothing can get between him and his elect. No power, no authority, no person, no nation can prevent his gospel from being preached into the ears of those he will save and set free and make his. And so we don't walk with fear. We don't go into nations that prohibit the gospel from being preached because of the authority by which they claim. We, we go, and we go without fear. We go in the confidence of the authority of God. Why? Because He has the authority. You go in the name of Jesus. Not that you have some kind of power, but that you represent and preach the gospel of the one who holds all the power. In first service this morning, we had two of our brothers from our motorcycle club from Belgium visiting in this after week of our national trip that we just took to Colorado. They flew out and spent the week there and then some extra time with us here in Bakersfield. This last year, we, we knew this was coming. They were faced with some very high and heavy opposition to the point where they went to a meeting by which they didn't know if they were going to leave the meeting. Some authority was being muscled and some demands were being made. And they went in and said, no, we stand with Jesus. We're not picking sides. We're going to do what we do. We're going to preach the gospel. And we prayed for hours. The meeting they thought would take hours and they anticipated not going well took minutes. And they said, you fly your colors, you do your thing. And they continue to preach the gospel they preach. And the point is, is that just God will have whom he will have. He will bring his missionaries, his disciples, into the lands, into the rooms, into the environments where he will save those whom he will save. And so we don't go in fear. We testify the gospel of Jesus and we trust his sovereign time for our life, for our witness. But 
This is why he then is able to confidently say, in the second part of verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Speaking of the Father, given authority over all flesh, to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given, to all of his elect, to all of his chosen people. His authority means he's able to grant eternal life to whom the Father has given him, his chosen ones. Do you remember Jesus' words back in John chapter 6? I know it was a moment ago. John 6, 37 through 40, Jesus said, Whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Praise God that salvation belongs to God. To the Lord. Not only the saving, but the securing of that salvation to the end. Amen? That's not up to us. That I don't have to beg someone to choose Jesus. It doesn't even work that way. I don't have to sing a song the right way. I don't have to, to buy you out. I don't have to, to, to preach a certain way or tell a story a certain way or befriend you a certain way. I have to preach the truths of the Word of God, the truths of the Gospel, and then call, as the Scriptures call us to, to that person, to repent and believe. Whether they do or not, is, is salvation belongs to the Lord. I can't influence that part. Preach the gospel. That's our job. He saves whom he will. He unstops ears, opens eyes. And in that moment, those whom he chooses to save in his perfect time are overwhelmed at the beauty of the gospel. The depth of their sin in the shadow of that cross by which they see a perfect and holy Lamb of God slain on their behalf to, to die to their sinful selves, to live for Christ for eternity. Yes, yes. He will have all whom he desires to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then he goes on further to describe what eternal life is. And this, verse 3, is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let me say it again. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Church, Adam and Eve were separated from God because of sin. Their relationships were severed because of sin. And everyone since. Sin separates us from knowing God personally. You might know about God, but do you know Him? I saw a sign this morning on the way to church as the sun was coming up. On my right on the side of the road had a picture of, I think it was Einstein. And it just said, do smart people believe in Jesus? I said, it's the wrong question. Who cares if they believe in Jesus? I mean, the, the thing they're trying to say is, even if smart people can believe in Jesus, maybe you should too. But here's the problem. Demons believe in Jesus. They believe he's real. They fear him. Believing about him is not enough. 
You must believe into him. You must know him. You cannot just know about him. You must know him. Church, stop giving credit to family or friends who say they believe in God. The demons believe in God. That is not to their credit. So what? Have you died yourself to live for Christ? Have you trusted your life to Jesus? Is there evidence that the beauty of God has overwhelmed you, that you're His in every way, you're maturing in your faith in the Word, you're not the Lord of your own life, He is. They're not dependent on themselves, they're dependent on Him. The question is, do they know God? Not know about Him. Not believe in a something out there entity. Not, not from afar a because they grew up in church and they have just enough church experience. Like, yeah, I believe in God or I read a Bible in jail. Yeah, I believe that God's real. Do they know him personally? There will be no eternal life for those who do not know God. Jesus said these most sobering words. And in our, in our modern society just loves to put this passage away. We just love to hold on to just the cultural thing that says, yeah, I believe in God, that's enough. No. On that day, many will say, Jesus says this himself, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus speaking, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 22-23. But here's the good news. God will save all those He intends to save. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus already said in John 10, remember in chapter 10, 27 through 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's good news. Do you know him personally? Jeremiah 9.24 Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Do you know him? Yeah, do you understand him here because you're studying, you're growing, you're maturing, but, but do you know him here? You must have a personal relationship with him. You can't, you can't have God without Jesus. Do you see the clarity there? Do you see it? This is eternal life, that they know 
you, the only true God, speaking of God the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's not one without the other. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you can hear my voice today in the room, listen to the podcast later, it is not enough to know about Jesus. You must know him personally. You must see the depths of your sin have turned from your self-production and being Lord of your own life to say, I am the Lord's. I'm his in every way. It's my joy to be his, to be blood-bought, to be adopted to the Father. Jesus is the Lord of my life. His word is the authority of my life. I'm a member of the church. I'm involved. I'm a committed participant. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You must know the Father and the Son. You cannot honor God unless you have equal honor to the Son, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That any religion that tries to say they have a way or a connection to God the Father without Jesus does not know God the Father. God is three in one. The only way to the Father is through the Son. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know that this is the only place in the New Testament where the Lord calls himself Jesus Christ? Revealing, affirming, as has been said in other ways throughout the testimony of the Gospels, that Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is the only true Messiah, the Christ. That's cool. Look at verse 4. I, am glor- I glorified you on earth, he says to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How did Christ, Jesus, glorify God the Father while on earth? The Scripture will tell us in his person, in his miracles, in his words, constantly ascribing praise to him, and above all, in his holy and perfect life. The Savior, the Messiah, sent into the world as a representative of of his people to render obedience to the law under which they were condemned. Galatians 4.4 says it well. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus glorified the Father by accomplishing the work that he was given to do. What was that work? To remain holy, unstained, so that he could be the true and perfect sacrificial lamb. Then to sacrifice his perfect life in the place of God, of those God sent him to save. As Jesus says this, having accomplished, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, he is ours from proclaiming on the cross, it is finished. Church, this is our only hope. That that Christ is, is who he says he is, lived truly a perfect life, died and rose again, 
in the place of those who deserve God's wrath. We rest in, we hope in, we walk in, we believe in, not our own work, but the work of another, the work of Jesus. Christ alone. The good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Through his perfect sinless life, substitutional sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace through faith in Jesus from the eternal wrath they deserved and are reconciled to a right relationship with God. That's the gospel. And so I ask you, do you believe into him? Do you trust your life to Jesus? Stop relying on your own works to get it done. You must rely on the works of another, the works of one, Christ alone. Have you died to the reign of yourself to live for the reign of Christ. Praise God, he finished the work he came to do. Without that work being finished, we, you, I, we have no hope. No hope. No chance. Finally, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ returns to the petition of the Father. Jesus had been humiliated purposefully. He had gone low so he could be a servant and savior for those who could not and would not serve and save themselves from sin. The, the great testament of this we find in the book we just studied over the summer, Philippians chapter 2, 5-11. through 11, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he, Jesus, was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness in, in likeness of men, being found in human form, being humbled himself, even becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? To the glory of God. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a Savior we have. But see that this is the fulfillment of the covenant of redemption from eternity past. Before there was creation, before the fall. A covenant of redemption that God has set out to be praised for eternity for His glorious grace. The promise of a Redeemer on that day way back in the beginning of the fall in Genesis 3.15 that that a Redeemer would come. And He's come. And He's lived perfectly. And He's died and He's rose again. And now He's exalted. And now He's our mediator. He's in glory at the right hand of the Father. He says, the glory that I have with you before the world existed. John's Gospel goes the furthest to make the point of the eternality of Jesus Christ. There are modern-day belief, belief systems and false religions that would argue that Jesus is a created entity. And biblically, for the sake of salvation, for the sake of the work of God, it just cannot be. 
Jesus is eternal, having no beginning, no end. Same as God the Father, same as God the Holy Spirit. And quickly to close, here it is. John 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Came from heaven. Didn't have a beginning. Came from eternity past. John 6, 20, 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 16, 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And now, John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Oh, I pray that that gives you chills like it does me. See Jesus come down, go low, put on flesh, do his work, He's talking to God the Father. We get to witness the prayer and he's saying it's time for me to be glorified and return to that glory with you. This work is finishing. Praise God for his grace. For his written word that we get to see this. I can't wait to see more with you in the coming weeks. Let's pray and respond in worship. Father God, we, we just praise you for, for the work of God the Son. We thank you for the plan of redemption. We, we praise you for the plan to redeem those who would not be deserving, that you would save any is amazing. It all exists for your glory. Lord, I pray and I praise you for Jesus' perfect life for his faithfulness to obey you, to fulfill the law in every way, for his work on the cross on our behalf, my behalf, for his ongoing work right now as mediator to even make this prayer possible. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus alone, Christ alone, makes possible and guarantees our eternal presence with you in glory that you are why we are here. You are why we worship. May we all the better follow Jesus' example of prayer that we would walk and talk with you more than we do. And today, help us see that all other sand is sinking sand. On Christ alone we stand. For those who might have come to this place who are listening to this audio wherever in the world who have not truly believed into Christ. They know about you. They've studied your word. They've been around the church but they have not died to self to live to Christ to turn from their sin to turn to Jesus that they would repent and believe and be reborn. 
the Holy Spirit would indwell them, that they would have fellowship with you because the perfect blood of Jesus washed them clean, because they are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to, to live for your glory and with you forever in eternal life. Help us to see, Lord, that those of us who are saved have eternal life, possessors of it. Why? Because we know you and your Son, and we're walking with you. Oh, God, you are a a good God, a good Father, and worthy of our praise. And, And in this closing time, we just want to praise you for the work of Christ alone. So hear us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.